It's my privilege to welcome you to Central this morning where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do and everything we pursue in this church is about the Lord Jesus changing us to be more and more like Him as His dearly loved children. I hope you experience that as you worship with us this morning. We're going to be studying Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25 this morning, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to that and keep your Bible open. We're going to look at a couple of different passages that Paul references in this text, and so keep your Bible open. This page 973 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you uh, turn there. And as we study our way through this book over the past several weeks, we've seen how the Apostle Paul is repeating the same message because he wants to make sure that we get it that His grace changes everything. And last week we saw that self-reliance leaves us with curse, but Savior reliance brings us life. As we embark on this first Sunday of Lent and leading leading our community toward the cross, being filled with repentance, where's the firm place to stand? Where's the firm place to stand when we see ourselves honestly in the light of God's mirror of his holy law? Where's our foundation? Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, hear God's word. To give an example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would behold Jesus here. Enable us to love him and follow him as your dearly loved children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In April of 2012, Chicago White Sox pitcher Philip Humber pitched a perfect game. Now, to some of you, that may not mean much. But a perfect game means that he retired 27 batters in a row. No walks, no hits, no errors. It was a perfect game, three up, three down, every inning for all nine innings. And there have only been 22 other pitchers in the history of the major leagues who've been able to do it. Since 1880, only 23 pitchers have done it. He did it in April of 2012, but by November of that same year, the White Sox cut him from their roster. Why? 
Well, there's an article that appeared in Sports Illustrated on, uh, that zeroed in on Humber's deadly character flaw, perfectionism. The article reported, the biggest problem with Humber wasn't his talent. It was, according to those close to him, the unrealistic expectations he set for himself. He's a perfectionist, says Robert Ellis, a former mentor to Humber. And Humber admitted, after the game, it was like, I've got to prove that the perfect game was not a fluke. It almost felt like I had to prove that I deserved to be on that pitcher's list. I was thankful for it, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that this was no joke. I'm really good enough to do this. And every time after that perfect game, Humber took the mound, he got shelled. (laughs) He wasn't the perfect pitcher anymore. He wasn't even a competent pitcher. The remainder of the season, he got shelled game after game after game. And he said, as the season came to an end, I just feel lost. The article in Sports Illustrated concluded with a ray of hope, however. It says this, Philip Humber does not know what will come next in his baseball story. This he knows. He's done chasing perfection. Chasing perfection and expecting to catch it terrorizes and imprisons people. It terrorizes us in our work, in our relationships with our families, students. It terrorizes you with your grades. And we even try to chase perfection and hope to catch it to gain God's affection as well. But we might worry. God, what are you going to do when you see my sin? If I don't keep up my end of the obedience bargain, are you going to abandon me? We might think when you're facing hardship, I wonder if God's punishing me. Is that what he's doing? Is he angry with me? Or if you're struggling and you don't measure up, you chalk it up to certainly God is really ticked. And if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't have any of this hardship. But none of that's true. What Paul shows us here in this text is that as followers of Christ, our foundation, our bedrock, our life is not found in chasing perfection tied to our up and down obedience in a performance-obsessed world but rather comes from a promise. Our bedrock, our foundation, our life is based on an unbreakable promise made by God himself. How does he show us that here in this text? Well, first, we live because of God's unbreakable covenant promise. Look at verse 15, where Paul is Pastor Paul here, giving us an illustration to help us understand his meaning. He says, even in a human covenant, Even if like a will, once it's been ratified, you don't change it. Imagine this scenario. Imagine a father that has two sons and one of them is wealthy and one of them is poor and this father divides his estate. And he designs his will so that the son with more money gets less from the estate and the one who is poor gets more so that they can both get what they need. The will is signed, it's ratified, and then the father dies. But before the will is read, the wealthy son, through lots of poor and unwise investments, he loses everything he's got. And the poor son comes into some wealth on his own. What happens when the will's read? Do they suddenly reverse the positions of the kids? That, well, now the one who was wealthy is poor, so we're going to give him more than the will says. No. 
Once the will is signed, once the promise has been made, once it's been ratified, even in a human covenant, you don't change it. When the promise comes first, the promise takes priority. Paul says it's like that with humans, but it's even more so with God. This is the logic of verses 15 to 18. Remember that human story. And then verse 16, Paul says, God made a promise to Abraham and a promise to his seed, as he says over and over again in the book of Genesis, his offspring. And Paul tells us here, namely, it's the Lord Jesus that based on believing in that promise, in the work that Christ did, anyone can live. And then verse 17, the law of Moses came much later. 430 years later, but it doesn't change the promise that God had already made. It doesn't change the promise that life comes to anyone who believes. Verse 18, the inheritance, that life in Christ that comes by the promise doesn't come by law keeping. And oh, by the way, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, there was a mediator between God and man when the law was given. Between God and man was Moses and God gave Moses that law, he wrote it down, but the promise was made by one God. There wasn't a mediator. God himself did it, God sealed it, and that one God will never break his promise. Now what Paul's pointing to here and pointing us back to that one God who made that promise is not a theoretical idea, but that covenant promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, and that's where I want you to turn right now. Genesis chapter 15, it's on page 10 in your pew Bible, if you want to look there. God made a promise to Abraham. He took him outside. And he says, look and see all the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Such will be your offspring, Abraham. You will be the father of many nations and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But remember, Abraham was childless. He was over 75 years old. His wife was was old as well. It was a nearly impossible promise to make. It was an impossible promise to keep. God... (laughs) How are you going to keep this promise? And yet Abraham believed, verse 6 says, and was justified. He believed that promise that God had given him and life came. But then maybe like you or I, a little bit of doubt began to creep into Abraham's mind. How can I be sure you're going to keep this promise? This one seems really hard, God. He says in verse 8, how can I be sure you will keep your word, God? And what God does next is beautiful. He cuts a covenant with Abraham to verify, to seal the promise that had been given. Now, in those days, when a covenant was made, they would take animals and they would sacrifice them, cut them in two. And then the two people making the covenant promise would walk side by side between the carcass of the animals. Now, that's gross. I know that's right. But that's how they sealed a promise in Abraham's day. And what they meant by that is, if either of us break this promise that we've just made, May what happened to these animals happen to me. It's a bond in blood. It's a promise of life and death saying, I will die before I make this promise I'm making to you. So look again at verse 9 of Genesis 15, where God said, bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon And he brought them all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Then down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. Do you follow what's happening here? 
This is one of the most significant events in the whole Old Testament. That smoking fire pot and that, that, that torch were visible manifestations of God who passed between these animals that had been cut in two. But where was Abraham? Verse 12. He was asleep. Leaned up against a tree, asleep. He didn't pass between the carcass of the animals. Abraham didn't participate in the vow. God alone made the promise. God alone ratified the promise. God alone is the one who guarantees the promise on both ends. By God going through that by himself, he's saying, Abraham, I will die before I break my promise to you. And Abraham, it all rests on me. I will die before I break my promise. And Abraham, when you fail this promise, I still bear the penalty. There's not a mediator. God himself, the one God, made this promise to his people. The one God says, I will bear the weight of the penalty of my people when they disobey. My people when they break the promise. God made the promise and God kept the promise. And Abraham only received it through faith, just like you and me. Life is given through a promise. Even in a performance-obsessed world, life only comes through God keeping his promise because that God who said, I'll die before I fail to keep this promise is the same God who took on flesh and walked the road to Calvary carrying a cross for our judgment, for our sin, carrying a cross for all the ways that we have broken covenant with God, the one who proclaimed, I'll die before this promise fails, himself died to save you and me. He went to the cross, gave his life. He was laid in a tomb and was raised from the dead. He ascended and occupies the throne and rules over us all now because God was going to keep his promise even when we break it. Do you see now how committed God is to this promise and how foolish it is for us to think that hope comes through our performance, that we would be good enough for God. Our hope, our certainty of blessing is is locked in tight through Jesus's performance. What Jesus did for us gives us life when we believe the promise comes first. And yet, if you're anything like me, we still worry. We worry that this hardship, this struggle, this pain in my life, maybe it's God trying to get me back for my lack of performance. Maybe God's out to get me because of I did that thing a couple of weeks ago and I said I wouldn't do it again. Is God trying to get me back? Maybe when you're at the end of your rope, you think, how can I hang on? I just can't anymore. The the pain's too much. God, what you're asking of me is too deep. The confession feels too risky. And God, I can't hang on. I can't follow you right now where you're leading me. I think God would say to you, remember the promise. Remember the promise. Your life doesn't come because you hang on to the Lord. Because you can't. Life is secure. Your heart is held firm. Your father tenderly cares for you because of our God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, secured by his promise. Not by our obedience in a performance-obsessed world. God's undying favor comes to you and me because Jesus died and was raised to life to keep that promise. 
Our God will never let us out of his grip because he's faithful to his promises. Like the hymn writer says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. When you can't see your way out, cry out to the one who has a hold on you, an unrelenting hold, an unbroken promise that binds him to his people. That's where our security comes from. So why then the law? So Paul says in verse 19, why the law then? What good is it if if life is secure through the promise? Why did he give it to us? Well, it's not so that you and I could have life. That wasn't its function. Charles Spurgeon said this, a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. Can you imagine trying to shave with this wood saw or your face or women shaving your legs with a hand? Of course not, because that's not what it was designed for. Paul says the law wasn't designed to give you life. Obedience can't save us, can't give us advanced standing with God. It can't be used to get God on our side. Maybe you're thinking, but I want to be a good Christian, so I've got to get it together in my life. I've got to get past this addiction. I've got to work this mess out in my marriage. If I'm going to be a good Christian, I've got to get to work. But friends, that's exactly backwards. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to Christ. But instead, we see our need and our sin, and we are driven to Christ for his healing and his work. Performance, according to the law, can't give us life. What is it good for then? Two things Paul says here. First, The law reveals our enslavement to sin. That's what he says in verse 19. The law was given because of transgressions. That is to make transgressions clear. To make plain what is in our hearts already. It labels us as lawbreakers. It it labels our sin. It shows us what it is so that we can't delude ourselves into thinking we're pretty good folks. I'm a pretty good guy, especially compared to those people out there. The law reveals what is in our hearts so that we might live in repentance and turn away from our sin, turn to the Lord for forgiveness and healing. John Stott said it beautifully. He said, the law lifts the lid off of our respectability. The law lifts the lid off of our respectability. Because so often, friends, it's not always the case, but often we love to wag our finger and point our finger at others in sin that remind us of the same sins we struggle with in our lives. It's the true of our human condition. But God's holy law won't let us get away with it. He won't let us get away with pointing our finger at other people's sin, but rather it lifts the lid off of our sense of respectability. For example, I I might point my finger and rail on someone else's sexual sin. I can't believe they did that. But the law points back at me and shows me the lust in my own heart. It lifts the lid off of my sense of respectability in comparison to that other person. Or I might rail on on the the violence in our cities, the murder rate that's gone crazy these past few years in the the pandemic. It's, It's terrible how much violence in our cities. And yet the law points back at us. And it shows me the contempt in my heart for other people. It shows me the soul murder that I commit every day when I have contempt for other people. It's an epidemic, but in here, not out there. 
Or we might say, you know, in our society, people used to serve. People used to give of themselves. They used to do all of these things. And it's not that way anymore. And I hate it the way our society is now. And yet when we look within our own hearts, we find it filled with resentment for having to serve somebody else. We find resentment when I'm asked to sacrifice something that means a lot to me in order to love someone else. It breeds resentment. The law will lift the lid off of our sense of respectability in the world and the law leaves us humbled. Missy and I went to a funeral yesterday in Nashville. Um, Maybe hard to talk about this, but this woman who died at 59 of a brain tumor was the wife of the minister that Missy and I planted a church with together in Arizona. And this woman, Anita, was the most incredible evangelist you've ever seen in your life. She was tender, she was compassionate. Person after person talked about how Anita could make anyone feel special. Make anyone feel desirable. Because she moved toward people in their sin rather than ran away from them. Anita was a tender and compassionate person. And one woman said this about her. She said, for Anita, sin was an occasion for sadness, but never superiority. She moved toward sinners. She was sad about the brokenness in their life, but she never counted herself superior to them. That's what the law does. The law lifts the lid off of our respectability in comparison to other people, and it leads us somewhere. It leaves us humbled as we see ourselves, and Paul continues, that law makes sure that we see that we are enslaved to sin. We can't reform ourselves out of it, verse 22 makes plain. It imprisons us. It locks us up in death. Verse 23 uses the same image of a prison warden. That law that humbles us shows us who we really are, but not so that we're caught in despair. Not so that we are trapped there, but that we might live according to the promise. Verse 22, that promise that God gave first, that we might be justified, have standing before God through faith, verse 24 says. It leads us to see that we are imprisoned in our sin so that we would count the promise as what saves us. Friends, whenever we are forced to see the sins in our lives, rather than worry that God's gonna drop us or abandon us, the law forces us to see the magnitude of all that our God is willing to forgive. We see ourselves as we really are and we see how much God has tenderly and graciously forgiven us. And the longer we walk with Christ, the more amazed we are. Because we see our sin even more clearly. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more we see the the corruption of sin in our souls. When we look in that mirror of God's holy and perfect law, and I see myself as I really am, then the cross has to get a whole lot bigger in my mind and my heart. We see the magnitude of the promise, the incredible blessing that God has forgiven me, all of this that I see about myself that you see about yourself. The law shows us who we are. It labels our sin. But that's not where it stops. Second thing that it does is it brings us freedom through faith. 
That's what verses 23 to 25 teach. The law can't save, it convicts, it kills, but it drives us to the promise in Christ that we might live. Augustine said it this way, the law was given to convert a great into a little man, to show that you have no power of your own for righteousness and might thus poor, needy, and destitute flee to grace. The law drives us to Jesus. Paul uses the image in verse 24 of a guardian that lays hold of us until faith in Christ. Now, some of your Bibles might translate that word guardian as teacher or schoolmaster, but that's, that's unfortunate because in the Greek system, the guardian, the pedagogue, as Paul calls him here, was not the teacher. So don't get in your mind, the law is like one of our gentle, tender, nice second grade teachers at Central Christian School. That's the wrong picture. The picture is the pedagogue who was the disciplinarian, was most often a male slave who had charge of children from about age six to 17. And that person was responsible for discipline. That person was responsible to get these kids where they were supposed to be on time and do what they were supposed to do. And in ancient art, the pedagogue is the one always holding a rod or a cane for the purpose of corporal discipline. That's the image that Paul uses. The law is our disciplinarian. It's not our teacher to show us how we can improve our lives. The law tells us what to do and then disciplines us when we fail, driving us to another place Verse 25 says to put faith in Christ. That's what it does. It shows us who we are and leads us to Jesus. One pastor said it this way. It strips us of our self-righteousness that we might come to receive real righteousness through faith. That's what it does. So friends, if you hear the condemnation that the law has brought into your life, you see the sin in your life, Repent and turn away from it. Turn to the cross of Christ and find full satisfaction of God's wrath. Because you can never make up for it. You can never reform your life to get in good standing with God. But this the Bible tells us, the cross of Jesus is enough. The cross of Jesus is big enough. It's complete enough to cover over all of our sin, to satisfy all of God's righteous judgment in our lives. And Jesus was raised from the dead in victory over it all. What Jesus has done is enough for you and for me. So look to that cross and see the work of Jesus so comprehensive that we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to protect ourselves from exposure anymore, but we can confess our sin freely because the cross of Jesus bridges that chasm between God's searing holiness and my desperate sinfulness. And the more we see our sin, the bigger the cross gets. The more we see our sin, the more amazing the cross becomes in our minds and our hearts. The guiltier we feel, the more we must look to the cross of Jesus. Whenever you see your sin and you repent, there is always more grace. Always more grace than there is sin in you. I'll close with this. John Stott, that wonderful English pastor and theologian, wrote this. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. 
Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Friends, in our performance-obsessed world, the Lord has made a promise that his grace changes everything And only the promise of a crucified God who was raised from the dead can give sinners like us life. So put all of your trust, all of your confidence, all of your hopes for your well-being, lay them all on Jesus because he's a promise keeper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we are driven to your cross. We thank you, Lord, that we are no longer left with the delusion that we're pretty good people. But you've lifted the lid of our respectability that we might find life in Jesus. So, Lord, take us to the cross and let us gaze upon your beauty. Take us to the empty tomb and see that you have victory over our sin. Let us see the ascension that you reign from the occupied throne in heaven. And you rule over this world for our good. Help us to see your work, Jesus, and find our life there. We're thankful that you are the one who always keeps your promise, even when we break ours. In Jesus' name, amen.